but it's really more of a you pull them around so you turn it into an S, you don't turn it into a straight piece of steel. I never thought you turned it into a straight piece of steel. Well, when they say straightening horseshoes, that's what I thought. Oh, okay. Well, let's start the show. For those who do not know, the biggest wrestling spectacular, names from all over the country, Former champions, I've never seen anything like it. Eddie Graham, Florida Promotion, Vern Gagne, Superstar Billy Graham, Road Warriors, Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis, Tennessee, Bill Watts, Jerry Jarrett, Dory Funk, Harley Race, uh, Nick Bockwinkel. This is Cigars in Conversation with Derek St. Holmes, Esquire. Hello and welcome to Cigars and Conversations, brought to you exclusively at OneGimmickWorld.com. I am your co-host, Jay Gilkay, and I'm sitting with a true raconteur in the world of professional wrestling. This man has shared the ring with a who's who of talent that ranges from Charlie Manson Jr. all the way to Seth Rollins, a wrestler, manager, commentator, and a trainer who's contributed essays to wrestling publications as well as trained himself to be able to rip a deck of cards in half with his bare hands. With 20 years of experience, he is a true Renaissance man with unlimited knowledge. Ladies and gentlemen, I am speaking of the incomparable, the one, the only, Derek St. Holmes Esquire. Derek, how are you? I am fine, thank you. Happy New Year. And a happy New Year to you too, sir. Um, Yes, I've seen you rip the deck of cards with your hands. Yes, yes, that's true. In a parking lot. (laughs) Well, but it was Saz's parking lot. It was, yes, yes. uh, Which has the great picture of the Crusher and Wahoo McDaniel in the back back room there. Absolutely. A great restaurant. uh, there There is an Al Saz that was a wrestler back in the 50s. I'm not sure if he's related to the chain or... Not probably right. not. You don't think so? Okay. I, I have no idea. Wasn't sure. I'm not from these parts. So. I just say I thought I thought that was a great time. Um, hey, guess what, Jay? I can rip a deck of cards apart, and then me saying, "Oh, you have to show me sometime," and then you just going into your car and grabbing a deck of cards, uh, waiting for the opportunity. Yes, yes, that is uh, that has been pointed out to me that that's the kind of nerdy aspect of being able to do this. Of somebody's going to ask why you had the cards someday. I'm like, oh, so I can so I can rip cards. Have you uh, done any more with the frying pan or not? No, no, haven't tried. Haven't started the frying pan yet. Okay. Want to get into horseshoes, but that's another. That's a whole, that's a whole other episode. That's a whole other episode. Yeah. Very good. All right. So today uh, we are going to take a trip to St. Louis, and we are going to talk about St. Louis wrestling, Sam Muchnick wrestling at the Chase, and uh, all kinds of good stuff like that, including the St. Louis Wrestling Club. Um, Derek, what do you think when we think when we say St. Louis? Uh, it comes to our minds, uh, a lot of different people, a lot of different stars from throughout the decades. What would you say the legacy of St. Louis wrestling is? Well, the legacy, uh, St. Louis was, of course, the hub of the NWA government because Sam Muchnick was president there, which we'll get into. Uh, but St. Louis was really the model of how you present your product as legitimate, as respected in the community, Um the wrestling promotion under Sam Muchnick had a great reputation. Uh, it was just the, the, the proper way to run a promotion if you wanted that type of status in the community. And the if I remember from some of the reading that we did, I, I'm going to be drawing a lot from Wrestling at the Chase, which was a great book. Sure, yeah. I do want to get into the books because there is another one that's... Uh, We've both talked about We'll get into that later. Sure. Uh, When you read the books and you realize that in St. Louis at the time when they were running shows early on at the Chase, it was a, I don't want to say it was a well-to-do event, but there were people coming dressed up, women coming with furs and men in suits. Like it was an actual must-do event for a a different echelon or a different level of tier of society, so to speak, at one point. It's still mixed in with the regulars. Right, right. But I mean, but it was definitely something to do. Uh, and I always found that uh, something that was different than a lot of other uh, places in the country because it just seemed to appeal to, I, I don't want to say highbrow crowd, but it just, I think it had that respect in the community. Yeah, yeah, yes, it did. And this is what I meant about how Muchnick positioned it. Uh, of course, Muchnick started out as a sports writer, so he knew how to get his message out there and work the press and everything like that. But 
Also, simple things like one fact that I read that I always enjoyed that if a bill came into the wrestling office, it was out that afternoon being paid. Right. And that's, you know, ultimately you vote with your dollars, and that's how Sam Muchnick was really able to generate that respect among the business community of, hey, this guy's a straight shooter, he'll, he'll pay his debts, he'll get everything done. You know, just a, a top businessman and very much a peacemaker, especially when you get into the personalities that he had to deal with as the president of the National Wrestling Alliance. Right. And I think uh, one of the, uh, I don't say key players, but one of the people that I, I found in doing a lot of the research, uh, Bruiser Brody, comes up quite a bit in the information. Never when heard co- of him. Yeah. Well, you know, he's a wrestler. Okay. Uh, kind of popular. Okay. Uh, character, I, I believe, is available on WWE 2K17 as a created one from somebody. Oh, I'll have to out check there that in the out. World, yeah, right. Anyway, Bruiser Brody. Just kidding. Yes. Anyhow, uh, so Bruiser Brody had his way of doing business. It kind of goes without saying. Everybody knows, uh, money wise, and him and Sam Muchnick seem to always really get along. And I think that speaks to what you just said with Sam Muchnick, just the fact that he paid his bills, he was fair with his paydays, things like that with his guys. Very much. And he also had respect in the wrestling community. I believe it was Bob Orton Sr. told his sons that if you have a flight scheduled to get into St. Louis and you see it's going to be snowy, you immediately go out and you buy that train ticket or you start driving because you do not miss St. Louis. Okay, yeah. It was that influential in the wrestling world. It seems like a lot of champions from uh, lots of different promotions came through as well. Well, exactly. That's where you got people to look at you, you know, from other promotions and the president of the NWA, you know, how you conducted yourself and everything. How was your business? Hey, is this a good guy to work with? Yes, of course he is. Right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Sam Muchnick. Let's kind of take it back a little bit. Uh, what background, just to, if you can give us a little bit of background on him, who he was, where he came from. Uh, Sam Muchnick, uh, St. Louis regular, was uh, born in the area, uh, actually started to make his original claim to fame as a sports writer in the area, but fell in with the promotion that was captained by Orville Brown, I believe the MWA, the Midwest Wrestling Association, but then there was a secondary St. Louis promotion coming in that was headed up by Lou Thez. Okay. Uh, as Thez came in, again, it was the new guard coming in, reestablishing the promotion that had previously been there. They arranged a buyout. Muchnick and Thez then became joined at the hip at that point. So Muchnick was very involved in the running of the promotion in the St. Louis area. Fell in with Gus Karras, who owned the Kansas City promotion, which would have been the closest geographically to St. Louis. Right. Remember, St. Louis was just a city. St. Louis wasn't a territory. Right. So he just had that, which was part of the Kansas City territory. Got in with the NWA that way and gradually raised the ranks to become the president of the NWA. Okay. So before St. Louis, where was the NWA headquartered? Uh, the NWA was established in Waterloo, Iowa in 1948 because that's where the first convention of promoters were. Oh, okay. Uh, from there, it traveled to Gust Karest in Kansas City, which is where he worked with Sam Muchnick. Sam Muchnick, I believe, originally came on as the secretary but was able to raise up in stature because of his connections with uh, state representatives and such. He was actually around and able to broker the consent decree that all the NWA promoters had to sign in the early 50s saying that they would not act as a monopoly. Right. And it's the fallout from this political move and his connections that allowed him to have such stature within the NWA. Sure, sure. And then so during his run as uh, head of NWA, that's when he begins wrestling at the chase. True. Uh, He, in addition to his duties as the president of the NWA, where he would book the champion and deal with conflicts between promoters and such, uh, he ran the St. Louis promotion where they ran every three weeks at the Keele Auditorium, uh, but they also ran their weekly television, uh, Wrestling at the Chase, Mm -hmm. which was filmed at the Chase Hotel. Formerly, it was that was another deal where it was originally broadcast during the dinner hour where you saw people dressed up. Uh, they were sitting with rows of tables. I believe there are only one or two matches still in existence. Uh, one, I believe one features Johnny Valentine. The other one features Pat O'Connor against Lorenzo Parente. Okay. That's it. And yep. it's just it's an incredible athletic-styled match. You know, just... 
it could still fly today, but there's almost nobody that could work that. So I'm well, just, just going to go with it. And so Sam Muchnick, he becomes close friend. Well, he has already set up then the St. Louis Wrestling Club at that point. Yes, yeah. St. Louis Wrestling Club was, of course, his promotion and then anybody else in the area that worked in there. So what he does is he ends up becoming friends with Howard Coppler, who uh, was the owner of KPLR, which is the station that the cha- uh, Wrestling at the Chase was. Really? Event. Yes. What a coincidence. What a coincidence that the the... Letters almost match up completely. Um, so they get together, and he was also the person that uh, owned the Chase Park Plaza Hotel as well. So uh, the story goes they were on an airplane together in 1958 and wondered how they could actually put wrestling onto St. Louis television, how to get it into the homes, and that's where the idea of wrestling at the Chase came up. Uh, that's true, because previous to that, uh, of course, Muchnick, with his background as a sports writer, was releading giving press releases to the newspapers and that's how people would follow all of this plus any kinescopes or anything that would be available also a lot of radio time was done but then once they broke into with this new thing called tv suddenly you've got a new way to expand your message well so the original program the first date was may 23rd 1959 and uh, it was televised originally at 10 a.m in the morning and that ended up moving time slots like you said which was to correspond more to when the family was around and they could actually watch and check it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so then uh, matches were broadcast on Saturday nights, repeated Sunday mornings, and eventually, well, and this was live at that point. Everything That's was true, re- yeah. right. Is that uh, that I can, they yes, just went yes, right. Okay. Yes. And then eventually though, the recordings did go live to tape, right? It wasn't always live at that point. Did you know? You... No, no, I'm sorry. Are you still talking about the original? Yeah, yeah. At the so, Chase I mean, so when I mean, the wrestling was, at the chase. It was like that for a while, but they, yeah. they could also film coverage if they wanted to take a holiday break or whatever. Um, keep going with your point, but I do want to get into how this worked into the promotional patterns sure. of Sam Much. Well, I was going to well. say, I think, uh, you know, going live and doing the live program on the Saturday evening and then re airing it on Sunday mornings, eventually they started going to the live tape system that I think it just became more practical possibly for them. Right, right, because you could have, you've got all the cameras, you've got everything hot, you can just film an extra three, four matches and cut that into your next television show, especially if there was a conflict with the equipment or the hotel or whatever was going on there. And the show itself was called Wrestling at the Chase. Did they ever show matches from other places, like from the keel? on that program oh yes of course because they would say oh well through the magic of videotape or the magic of film we're going to show you what happened at the keel blah 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 you know you'd probably see everything except for the finish of the match or if they wanted you to see the finish to build up whatever story was going on remember st louis was it was treated very seriously this is the other we talked about the legacy of st louis wrestling before uh Wrestling was prevented, presented very believably in St. Louis, and Sam Muchnick didn't allow a lot of hanky-panky in his matches. Well, and let's go over that because I have a bunch of them okay, here okay. That, um, that I'm familiar with. But one of those, Sam recognized only one world champion, the NWA world, ch- world heavyweight champion, but he did recognize the Missouri champion as the regional one, correct? Correct, correct. Okay. Uh, uh, in the after mags, it was always referred to as the stepping stone to the NWA title. <laughs> right, right. Uh, he cautioned everybody before their match to keep it competitive. Yes. He wanted to uh, make sure that uh, the goal was that uh, the goal was to win the match. Exactly. It, exactly. You know, just uh, keep it a contest. Uh, the match must be kept in the ring. If the competition uh, or were not uh, keen on that, the referee had orders to stop the match. That's true. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm agreeing with everything you're saying because this is this is what he put into his his presentation. Also, another thing, I'm not sure if you have this written down, but I'm going to say it anyway and steal it from you, is there was a clock above the ring at the keel. So, like, if he told people to go 60, they were doing a hard 60 because oh, okay. the people could look up, see when the match started, and see when it completed. Right. Okay. <laughs> That's pretty great. Yeah, well. A lot of guys looking up at the ceiling. Yeah, sure. like, oh, geez. Oh, how much longer? How much longer? Uh, another one, uh, that the officials carried authority and that there was to oh, be sorry. no. Oh, sorry. Sure. Just to go off on a side, uh, a side tangent there where you're saying you have to do so much time. My favorite is uh, I heard one time of Ric Flair in the ring with possibly a younger Armstrong. I'm not sure who it was, but down in the south somewhere. 
And Flair blew the kid up and had him in a chin lock. And the guy said, oh, man, I'm going to throw up. I'm going to go throw up. And Flair says, okay, kid, you go over to the other side of the ring, stick your head out and throw up, and then get back here. We're doing 25 tonight. <laughs> Just, that's that's what we got to do. That's, so went over, that, threw that up, came back, had the rest of the match. That's awesome. Sorry to pull you Yeah, no problem. There. Those are always, I always love those. Um, officials carried all the authority. Uh, no outside interference was tolerated whatsoever. The the oh, I already said that one. The no abuse of the officials was allowed as well. The you know keep the hands off the official, never mm-hmm. a ref bump, any of that kind of stuff. There was always a medical examination for each wrestler before participating that night. Sure. Yep. Uh, no foreign objects in the ring. Again, sure. Yep. Uh, no two men on the floor at the same time. Yes, I've heard that. And uh, also that Sam was not a fan of masks or gimmicks. So that's why a lot of groups like the Invaders and um, people like that <laughs> the, never The came Invaders in. were never coming in. Yeah, no, I know. But, uh, but yes, but he wasn't a big fan of people who had gimmicks. Then the big one that I read about over and over again, a lot of uh, guys were saying, the ring in St. Louis was supposed to be one of the hardest rings in the business. Yes, yes. What is the saying? Uh, the softest thing about that ring is the concrete floor that it's set up on. Yeah. <laughs> Used to love that. And um, prior to the show, either Bobby Bruns or Pat O'Connor were the ones that would let the boys know this is what we expect of you, and and everyone followed it, followed it to a T, and always tried their best to make the matches look as credible as possible. That was the goal of each show. Correct. Bobby Bruns is a name. Uh, I don't want to gloss over that because he was also very instrumental in several different parts of the business. It uh, also the introduction of American style pro wrestling to Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the tours organized for the troops went through Bruns and Bruns was one of the ones that helped to train Ricky Dozan. Oh, okay. Um, uh, very known as a booker, <laughs> known as a booker in several different areas, settled in the St. Louis area, um, had some things in common with Jim Barnett. Gotcha. Yes. And, uh, did read in one book, I think it was the Assassin's book, where he talks about them getting in kind of a little cat fight backstage. And Barnett said something about, well, I'll just sit on my wallet and you sit on yours, Bobby, and we'll see who's taller. Something like that. You know, so. <laughs> that's a great, that's very, another very great one. Very interesting. Another fantastic my one. My boy. Let's, uh, let's take it to the personnel for the show, uh, Wrestling at the Chase. Uh, original play-by-play commentator was Joe Garagiola. You ever see the guy looks like Vern Gagne? Yeah, a little so, bit. So weird. Yeah, I got to agree. Uh, he, I believe Joe Garagiola is in that clip we talked earlier with O'Connor and Parente because afterwards O'Connor demonstrates his O'Connor roll up on Garagiola as he's standing outside the ring, and I believe he he calls the show like does his sign off while he's all crunched up in the hold. That's awesome. Yeah, that's definitely worth checking out. So if the show started in May of 1959, Garagiola was commentator until 1963. Replacing him, Don Cunningham, uh, not too much known, uh, just that uh, the following year after starting, he died. Yeah. And that was it. Uh, From that point, he was replaced by George Abel. And then in 1972, uh, Larry Matizic, is that it? Is that how you pronounce it? Matizic. Matizic, sorry. Larry Matizic ended up uh, joining as the... uh, co-play-by-play with uh, George Abel. And uh, ring announcers included uh, John Curley, Eddie Grimaki, uh, Joe Garagiola's brother, Mickey Garagiola. Mickey. Hey. And, uh, I mean, then the, the list of who's who of people who came through the territory at that point, or through the, oh, the yeah, area, I, mean, I should th- say. That's just territory. endless because, remember, everybody would want to come through there uh, to be seen by Muchnick and to be considered for the NWA title, you had to get over in St. Louis. Like you had to get over in Florida, you had to get over in St. Louis. Uh, the that that's where the decision makers were. Right. You know, if you wanted to be considered, then they those guys would get together, uh, St. Louis and Florida, and then they'd organize to send you around all the territories so that you could you know be known to the fans before you took on the title. And so. Oh, but getting oh, back yes. to this list of rules that you just sure. said, the effect of all these rules was, again, the respect of professional wrestling in the St. Louis area because as far as they knew from the information they received, wrestling was a legitimate sport that had these definite rules and definite boundaries, and they were able to appreciate the sport 
you know, in the sense that people grow to appreciate modern mixed martial arts fighting. Yes. It's not just a gather of hands and feet. No, there's actual strategy and we can see what's going on. In addition to having all of these rules that were put in place, Muchnick also had a promotional style that made a lot of sense and was very, uh, very sensible, very realistic in that, you know, if a lower card guy got a one, got a win, he was in the next match up on the next month and you could watch people slowly climb the climb the ladder uh wins and losses meant something uh there weren't a lot of if, if there was a draw or uh a non-finish that led sensibly to a match the next time that would eliminate right. that for example several 60 minute draws okay we're now we're going to have a 90 minute match yes uh little thing from johnny valentine is if if you have a match like that, you keep going 60 minutes and then you extend it to 90 minutes, you still have to wrestle over an hour in that next match in order to get the gimmick over. Right. Oh, for sure. Like, you know, you have to take your finish at like 75 minutes. You can't go out there and go eight and say, oh, sorry, just slipped over. <laughs> right. I mean, that would kill the town. Right. Uh, speaking of killing the town, Muchnick also understood the need to structure your yearly presentation uh Basically, he factored in downtimes. Okay. He knew that he would build to a big card here. So then he would book a card, not necessarily to lose money, but one that he knew wouldn't exceptionally draw because he knew you need to get the general populace brought up and then you had to take them back down in order to build up your crowds again. You couldn't maintain it at an upper level. Right too long because then it would just drop off and nobody would come. Yeah, because it's unrealistic to think something can just perform at a high level consistently over a long period of time. Yes, and that's something I I wonder, again, I can't say back in my day because then this just becomes me griping, but I wonder if that's something that is still needed in even today's wrestling if you're running a monthly promotion to just realize that, okay, we do have to write off you know, the, the three months when school starts right, or, or right. the three months, you know, mostly the three summer months. Like, okay, we just have to write those off. We can't really gear a major payoff when we know other stuff is going on. So you have to, you know, you have to budget that in. You can't, you know, everything can't be a home run. Right. Yeah. Every, every time can't be a sellout or can't right. be a packed house, which, yeah, I completely agree with that. 100%. Um, I was going to ask you too, uh, about much Nick in the way that he ran his shows. He wasn't an angle person per se. Well, I guess in the sense of, he wasn't having guys come out and cut promos, and it was all the the story was told in the ring, which led to what the match was the next month, correct, or the ma- next time that they they faced each other, correct. And as a matter of fact, uh, there was one show, I, I forget the particulars, you can look it up, but Muchnick was gone for the execution of the show, and the finish that night was Terry Funk using a chair on his opponent to soften up his knee for the figure four and won the Missouri title. And then when Muchnick returned from his vacation and found out what was done, he was so furious about that that he had the match thrown out. Oh, really? But yeah, like, no, you're not the champion. This this, you know, this never happened. I mean, he, was, he felt <laughs> yeah, that's that pretty strongly crazy. about yeah. the, the presentation of what was going on. As far as his angles, instead of, oh, you broke my trophy, my kung fu is stronger type of angles, it would be something that happened in the ring a la the NWA champion being booked in a tag match and dropping the fall to somebody in the other team, suddenly that person is now in contention for the NWA title. Right. So it wasn't so much matches as the natural athletic ebb and flow of the storyline there as opposed to you slapped my mother and now we must fight or something right, like right, that. Right, right, right. Yeah, because I, I definitely feel like when you watch a lot of this stuff from St. Louis and you see some of the shows, you realize that the story being told in the ring, the finishes, the the setups, it really does lend itself to that next week or that next episode to what's going to happen. And I always like that because I just think it uh, it shows the strength of the perform the in ring performance of the wrestler over just uh, you know nowadays oh you've got to be able to talk you've got to be able to do this you got to be able to to do that and it's a great to be a complete package but back then. Uh, a lot of guys could just really even work. A, even a total package. Yes. Uh, guys could work their asses off, and they could tell a great story in the ring that would lend itself to that next time you saw them compete and you remembered exactly what happened in that previous match 
which led to the ne- the next step in the feud or in the, in the uh, angle that they were running in the ring. So R- related to what you're saying, also there weren't a lot of managers in St. Right. Louis because they didn't cut the the wild the wild promos. Uh, I believe it was one time when one of the blackjacks was brought into St. Louis for for a one-off. They sent their tapes down from the AWA to insert the promos on TV. But Bobby Heenan was the one that really got the heat for the blackjack in this promo. So Muchnick made a, I want to say, made a an exception and brought Heenan in with blackjack because he knew that's where the heat was. But overall, there weren't a lot of managers in St. Louis. Right, right. No, again, just it's almost that, uh, I don't want to say managers add a level of theatrics to the event, but I guess they kind of do. Well, you needed, you know, the object of a manager was to talk for somebody that can't talk. Right. You know, they just have to stand there and look menacing while the manager does all the blah, 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 blah. Speaking of gimmicks, uh, another fun story I always read that I, I liked was the fact that the Sheik uh, <laughs> would... Uh, when... I, I know, yes, I know this one. <laughs> uh, do you want to share it? What uh, what Muchnick agreed to bring him in for three dates, yeah, and the Sheik thought it was his usual shtick, so he went out there and got disqualified in the first minute, and Muchnick was so furious that he just used him twice in jobber matches and never brought him uh, back. Yeah, th- th- absolutely, yep. And then uh, later on down the line, um, when uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to murder the name again, uh, when uh, Matizik, when uh, Larry Matizik. Met up with uh, the Sheik later on, and he said, hey, you know, why don't you ever come back to St. Louis? He said, I don't think the old man likes what I do in the ring too much. Nope. And that was that. Right. So, again, kind of proving that point where it's like it's got to be more athletic and more to the point in there. So that's that's great stuff. Uh, So Larry Matizik also, he started a non-NWA group in St. Louis as well called the uh, Greater St. Louis Wrestling Enterprises. Uh, And it uh, ran in opposition to Muchnick's old group. Um, yeah, you're going really far. And that's going to go into the future. Right. But that, but there was never like he was, but, uh, Larry Matizik was pretty much the right hand man of Muchnick the whole time that Muchnick was running his shows. Right. Yes. Yes. He worked in the office, did a lot of the promotions, uh, the, the incredible programs that were put together during his era you know, he's the one that did all of that. So he was very tapped into the mindset of Sam Muchnick and how wrestling worked. Um, Remember to what we said before, like wrestling worked in that area because that's what the people were educated to as right. opposed to the Wild Memphis or the methodical AWA. Uh, Madison later came out with a book, what, what was it, not Drawing Heat, but Drawing Heat the Hard, the hard way. way or something yep. like that, which uh, I'm not going to implicate anybody else. I'm just going to give my opinion on this book. Made perfect sense because he was asking basically why doesn't wrestling make sense in the way it used to and blah, 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 which is a valid opinion. However, in today's environment, I felt the book came off kind of whiny yeah. because you can't put the genie back in the bottle and sure you could bring some things back in, but the style of wrestling has migrated so far from what St. Louis had the, you know, the very straight ahead. You couldn't do the athletic version of wrestling again. Right. Because again, you, there's so many other options available, you know, it, it, it it just wouldn't work. I mean, sure. You we want wrestling to be very, uh, methodical. It shouldn't have to insult our intelligence. We shouldn't have to stress our suspension of disbelief in order to get into the story. Uh, however, as with any regional book of wrestling that's been written, they feel that their local wrestling was the best ever. However, San Francisco uh, has a very valid argument that Roy Shires had a formula for running wrestling in his area that also made perfect sense, but was more angle-heavy and very different from much. But they both have... The big thing is it all made sense. Right, and it made sense for the area that it was in. Right. At that time. Yeah, you could you could tailor, you know, whatever angle with the local flavor and everything like that. Now, you you know, it has to be a national deal, so it has to apply across all boundaries right. and everything like that. I still think it could be more methodical and make, make, you know, make more sense, not have to stress disbelief. That's just my feel. But, again, the people in charge are trying to – breakthrough to get to whatever wrestling is turning into so they need to push the envelope you know, right i understand that so. uh, speaking of pushing the envelope too much nick not a fan of blood in his matches or blading 
in his stuff. Right. Well, I mean, blading is horribly unrealistic because why are you always going to bleed from your forehead? Granted, I believe it goes back to when you used to split your eyebrow open, but it's always there. But, right. you know, there's going to be more bloody noses, bloody ears, bloody mouths instead of everything coming from the forehead. When um I mean, but you know, when it was used, right. it, it it had a lot of impact. I'm thinking of when David Von Erich had Harley Race in the in the claw and Race does the totally obvious blade job, but comes up with the blood suddenly that establishes david von erich as a contender right you know well i want i want to get into the von erichs in a second but uh i just so as, did as barnett a, my boy <laughs> as an aside um i once walked into uh a door frame don't ask and i started bleeding from my forehead uh-huh. uh, at the hairline and i said to myself like i think this is the only time in the history of anything that anyone has actually busted themselves open and was bleeding looking you know wrestling style blood in the face um yeah i know it's just kind of one of those things when i probably should have been wiping the blood off my face i was like wow this would look like if uh i was in a match suddenly you clenched your feet and slowly circled yeah yeah exactly bugged your eyes out yeah it was it was excellent Mary Ann Kostecki, better known by her ring name Penny Banner, was best known for her time spent in the American Wrestling Association and also the commissioner of the Professional Girl Wrestling Association, PGWA, from 1992 until her untimely passing. Banner's foray into the world of wrestling occurred largely by happenstance. She was working as a nanny for three children and as a part-time lounge waitress when venerated St. Louis promoter Sam Muchnick was informed by her boss that Banner, then Kostecki, was capable of doing 200 sit-ups. An amused Muchnick bet her that she could not complete the task, and after she did, she began getting calls from the promoter trying to woo her into becoming a female professional wrestler. Muchnick offered her $50 a week to give wrestling a try. To Kostecki, the quick money was appealing, though she wasn't a fan, nor had she ever taken it seriously. She was naturally athletic, having taken tumbling and judo classes, along with playing basketball and volleyball in high school. More than anything, wrestling was a chance for 19-year-old Mary Ann Kostecki to leave the projects of St. Louis and see the world. There were no more than 50 women wrestlers in the entire business at the time, and the work was limited. But she used her natural athletic ability to breeze through the initial workouts and so impressed infamous women's wrestling promoter Billy Wolf that he booked Banner for her first match two weeks later against a grappler named Kathy Branch. She jokes that she, quote, started out on the right foot, unquote, by borrowing a pair of boots from Ella Waldeck. Her opponent, who didn't wear shoes and was also new to the business, broke her ankle when she took a body slam the wrong way. The 5'8 Banner bleached her hair blonde, took a ring name based on a character Charlton Heston played in a movie, and was well on her way to becoming one of the top heels on the women's circuit. I could have been the Buddy Rogers of women's wrestling, says Banner. I'm the first girl who started wearing two-piece bathing suits in the ring. I always tried to do something to be memorable and different, something more than just flying mares and dropkicks. Banner paid her dues by losing more matches than she won early in her career, but her flair for the business was obvious to everyone who watched her perform, including then-women's world champion June Byers, who kicked Banner around the country for those first three years. Banner, however, quickly ascended to the top of the women's wrestling game. She won the U.S. and Canadian tag team titles with Bonnie Watson, who later married ref Stu Schwartz, Betty Jo Hawkins, who later married Brute Bernard, and Lorraine Johnson, who later married Nick Roberts and was the mother of the Perfect Ten baby doll Nicola Roberts. When a 1959 match with the NWA champion June Byers ended in a draw, Penny was booked into another match with Byers in Indiana for the newly formed American Wrestling Alliance, but Byers no-showed the event. Instead of their scheduled match, the AWA booked a battle royal, which Banner won to become the first AWA Women's World Champion. During this time, Banner was paying Billy Wolf, who booked their matches and controlled his girls like a sultan rules his harem, 40% of her pay. Banner left him to go to Tennessee to work for Nashville promoter Nick Gullis. 
It was there that a mutual friend who sold Elvis Presley souvenirs got her a ticket for an Elvis concert back in her hometown of St. Louis. A ticket was left at the press gate of the Keele Auditorium where she bought a pair of binoculars for a buck when she couldn't even see the stage. A number of officers summoned her and told her that they were ordered to take her backstage. She recalls being escorted past a bevy of beauties when she and Elvis exchanged smiles. She watched his performance from the side of the stage. He later invited her to the Chase Hotel where she met his backup band, the Jordanaires, before he took her up to his room. They talked and kissed all night long. I spent the night with him. We both fell asleep in the bed. I got up at 7 in the morning and went home. Thank God my mom was still asleep. I never told her anything. The king of rock and roll would later become a regular for Banner's matches in Memphis and would invite her to Graceland, his home, after the shows. We'd kiss all night long while the guys, the Memphis Mafia, played pool, recalls Banner, who dated Elvis sporadically over a three-year period. Banner says she was heartbroken when she heard the news of Elvis's death years later. She had just turned her real estate license when she got in her car and turned on the radio and heard the news. The man she did eventually marry, Johnny Weaver, was a referee when the two met during the late 50s in the Kansas City area. By the time the two wed in 1959, Weaver was an up-and-coming star in the wrestling business. She points to signs throughout the marriage, even before the marriage, that foreshadowed an unhappy ending. Even their wedding plans had to be switched around to the last minute when her Catholic priest refused to conduct the ceremony since Weaver had been married before but hadn't gotten the final divorce papers. To make matters worse, Weaver informed his wife that they were going to Charlotte. With the fabulous Moolah, Lillian Ellison, ruling the roost in J Jim Crockett's Mid-Atlantic Territory, the few times Banner and Ellison did wrestle her, neither were billed as champs. She and Weaver, who was one of Crockett's most popular stars during the 60s, made a pact that she wouldn't work a territory that he didn't. With Weaver firmly entrenched in the Mid-Atlantic wrestling office, Banner's career was largely limited to dates in the Carolinas and Virginia, working with a select number of women. Since Weaver was a babyface, Jim Crockett asked Banner in 1962 to work as a fan favorite as well, despite the great success she enjoyed as a heel for the previous six years. Since she was married to Weaver, she had no choice. The tumultuous marriage ended after 35 years when she left her husband for the last time. During her career, Banner received many injuries. She almost had her nose ripped off and her elbow was severely dislocated. Banner claimed that she retired in 1977 after June Byers, who owned the NWA Women's Championship, retired because of a car accident. <laughs> well that, and the fabulous Moolah had cornered much of the national women's wrestling scene with her trainees and herself, which left Banner with nobody to wrestle. In her last 20 years of wrestling, Banner was only defeated twice, once by Moolah and once by Belle Stewart, both of whom used the ropes for leverage while pinning Banner. In 2005, Penny Banner was diagnosed with cancer. In February of 06, the cancer had shrunk considerably after a doctor's checkup. However, in late 2007, Banner suffered several health crises, including pneumonia, resulting in severe weight loss. She died in her sleep at the home of her daughter, Wendy, in Charlotte, North Carolina, on May 12, 2008. Von Erichs, uh, they were brought in a lot. Uh, much of, did he was he tight with Fritz oh, in sure. Texas, and that was, but Fritz. But at that point, was Fritz with the NWA at that point? Oh yeah. Okay. And yeah, yeah, the NWA champion was the number one prize in wrestling in several different areas for a long time. In world class, that went through to what was that eighty six, eighty seven. Oh yeah, they, I guess you're right. Now that I'm thinking off. about it. Yeah. But yeah, the big thing was either bringing in Harley Race or bringing in Ric Flair to go against the boys. That was, I sometimes get my ahead. dates get mixed up with stuff. So yeah, and I'm thinking, of course, yeah, because Carrie had in Reunion Arena with uh, 
flair for the David uh, Von Erich Memorial that was NWA, right? Was yeah. it reunion? Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah. So I'm sorry. That my wasn't dates, reunion. Or, well, or wait, was it? I mean, I'm sure they did wrestle in reunion. Or, or what was the big one? When the, the big one wasn't that the Cotton Bowl? Cotton Bowl. That's it. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah it's okay. There's no, so no, many. it was Texas Stadium. There you go. Because of right. my patented phrase, whenever I do commentary, shades of Texas Stadium. <sighs> whenever, whenever I see a backslide, that's in my contract. Haven't needed along a champion. With, along with having to sit on the right. Yes. I, I just... I, I uh, sit on the right for commentary. Again, sometimes my, my, my time frame slips and I forget. So, yes. But so... Um, and so, so they were up there. What did the St. Louis crowds responding to the Von Erichs, definitely like the Southern boys. I mean, they're good looking. I'm sure that right. helped them out, but that was fine. The St. Louis was fine as that Midwestern hub. They were okay with the, the, I don't say the ethnicity when it comes, uh, uh, did they, did Muchnick work a lot with, uh, different, different, different ethnic wrestlers and bringing people from Texas and they all were well received in St. Louis. Are you saying that? Texas people are somehow a different race. No, and that's what I was trying to say. Like, just like from different different regions of the country, then bringing in other uh, ethnicities and whatnot and stuff. The way New York Jones and the R stands for guts. They, yeah. (laughs) But you know, we think about uh, New York, or we think about the East Coast, and we think about how they rely so heavily on ethnicity. And now we're talking about St. Louis. And, you know, does the same thing hold true there? Did it matter? You look at them bringing people up from Texas. You know, it's all I can go down to Florida right now and someone's going to call me a Yankee and not be happy with me. So I'm just saying, was that was it something where what were the crowds responsive to the people coming from other parts of the country, other ethnicities, that type of thing? Yes. And they were receptive because St. Louis had that reputation of being able to mix up the deck so much. Okay. As far as the Von Erich boys coming in, that was a promotional agreement between Muchnick and Fritz uh, because they were going to be featured because it was Fritz's business plan that all three of his boys were going to hold that title. Gotcha. You know, very similar to what uh, Funk Senior did for his boys. So stuff like that. You're Fritz von Erich. Oh, just wait. Oh, sure. Just, just wait. I'm still. But I want to explain that St. Louis was a city of its own, uh, a city that was tangentially related to the Kansas City territory. So Kansas City had a weekly territory, but one of its stops, uh, not weekly, every three weeks, was St. Louis. So that was the the cherry on top of the Sunday for working the the Saint, the the Kansas City territories. If you got the St. Louis booking, that's where you made your grocery money because the money was shit in the other right. cities on the tour. So there was always pressure from the booker of the Kansas City territory on Sam Muchnick to use all of the Central States boys. Okay, which because of what they were paying, weren't exactly the level of the talent that Muchnick wanted to feature and had access to through his promotional connections Mm -hmm. okay so uh again muchnick always wanted st louis to be the jewel so he was able to concentrate on this one city and he would use you know the first two three matches had the central states boys and then his upper two-thirds was imported talent and storylines that he was running separate from the rest of the kansas city territory Sure. Oh, okay. I so, get it. so the people in St. Louis were blessed in that they always had this melting pot of different talent of people wanting to be seen, uh, champions passing their way through. So it was know. a real nice revolving door yes. of talent yes. coming through. Yes. So uh, back to my next thing, your Fritz von Erich or your a Graham or your whoever you want to be. Uh, I want to be Roy Shire. Okay. And you need... Spit tobacco juice in the corner of the... <laughs> you need... Some of your guys you're bringing up you're in your territory, you want them to get some exposure and you want them to get some experience. The benefit of sending them to St. Louis would be what? Because I think from what I understand from what we've talked about in the past, if so if Fritz sends the boys to St. Louis to work there and gets the, I mean, I guess to get them in front of Muchnick so Muchnick can see them, does that benefit Fritz in the sense that were they able to take footage from St. Louis and play it on Texas TV? Were they able to show the exposure that the talent from around the country and the other territories were getting out in St. Louis? Was that a shared thing? Absolutely. Okay. Especially uh, you have the tape of David Von Erich over race. That Suddenly you can show that that little snippet of, look what happened in St. Louis. What's going to happen when this is in his hometown? Right. You know, So you had that advantage. Plus other promoters were there, and they... It was recognized in the business if you got booked in St. Louis, got over in St. Louis, that you were a competent name and you could safely be brought in anywhere. Yeah. So it was a very, 
you know, networking for the boys. The viewership may not have been national, but the reputation would go national. Okay. And I was, I guess, it's interesting to think about that to me, for me, because, so say you have a footage, like you said, David Von Eric going over Harley Race, and then that gets shown back in Texas. If I'm that Texas fan, and I see this happening, as excited as I guess I would be to see the match in hopes that there is going to be a title change or something down the road, I I don't know. It kind of feels like it makes race weak to me a little bit. How do you feel on that? I don't understand your point. Well, I guess because it's like you're seeing if, if, if a champion is a champion and all you know of this champion is them winning and they're coming to defend their title in, in your territory, right. someone who doesn't come in that often, they're passing through and doing that little program, but... Uh, but you're exposing your audience there to footage of your star already beating this incoming champion. Doesn't that take any heat off of that incoming champion? Uh, I don't feel it takes the heat off the champion. I feel it puts heat on the cha- or puts interest puts heat, into the challenger to, to see if they can recreate yes. what they did. Yeah. Okay. No. And but okay. I don't think. That's I fair. mean, he didn't pin race. I think he just had him had him in the claw hold. Claw hold. His blood. Cover. Yeah. Right. Okay, that that makes sense then. No, I was just curious on how, you know, just trying to think through that whole psychology and how something like that would work and how it would lend to, you know, doing because it's wrestling and we say so. No, what you want to do is race. Race would have already come into that situation with the invincible aura. Okay, you know, because he'd already been in and beat X, Y, and Z, but then you're showing where there is a chink in his armor, and. You know, can David Von Erich exploit this on their next battle? Right. You know, no, and that, I, yeah, that absolutely that that makes sense. Um, so let's we're gonna kind of move it along on this one a little bit. So basically, uh, wrestling at the chase runs for one thousand and one hundred episodes over twenty four years. Yes, and I hear you have every single one of those taped. No, I do have the uh, ten volume high spots best of St. Louis DVD set, which everybody clamored for when they came out. But unfortunately, it's it's the television matches of the St. Louis era, right. which are sure features a lot of talent, but really kind of boring because it is so legitimate and on the mat and everything like that. Again, it. This is the you know, rose-colored glasses of nostalgia. Uh, wrestling was so much better when I was a kid, but you also had the monthly or weekly development of what was going on outside of the television show. Television show very much the vehicle to sell the arena show. Right. So you're getting, you know, you're you're getting entertainment and seeing stars, but they're not doing a whole lot. And then you get your one or two interviews per show that are done in a very sportsmanlike manner. Um, one of my favorite is. There is tape of Dick Murdoch sending in a an interview from Japan where he's wearing his, his New Japan track shoot and he's actually talking about slamming Sammy Muchnick and what he's going to do to him back in St. Louis and stuff like that. Um, oh, you asked earlier about the prestige of St. Louis and other areas. Gary Hart, as a booker in Texas, would often do set up a match. Like, here's a non-title match between... Uh, Kevin Von Erich and Harley Race, and this match is going. This non-title match is going to set up the championship match. But if, but if Race wins, the match is going to be held in St. Louis. If Von Erich right. wins, the match is going to be held in Texas. So now the people are still rooting for their their hero, but they're rooting for a different reason that again allows the champion to have a chink in his armor and can he exploit this. Oh, we also mentioned this earlier about how much Nick would book the champion in that whatever the championship uh, the championship battle between the challenger and the champion, however it would go, the champion had to go over in the end. Yes. Because the champion was the one that was in charge. Uh, Muchnik believed in this very much and you know would often exert a little muscle to get his will done. It's like, no, your guy's not going over, you know, our champion has to win, or you're going 60. Can your guy go 60? No, he can't. Boom, then he's getting pinned in 25 minutes. Yeah. You know, so there was a <laughs> lot of that. Now, it was this insistence on the invincible champion from Muchnik that got done away once Muchnik stepped down, which I believe we're going to get into soon. Yep. Uh, once Muchnik stepped down, suddenly the people that took took over 
Uh, Fritz von Erich became the president of the NWA, didn't want to be involved in booking the champion, so it went to Jim Barnett, my boy, who we've already talked about, who just wanted the money and didn't care what you did. So he had a lot of disqualifications and cheap yep. victories and everything. And, and we that talked about that. Yep. that. Yeah. So uh, the St. Louis Wrestling Club originally began recording one show at a time, like we talked about. Right. The crowds would come in. Everything was great. Eventually, in the early 1970s, they began recording three shows at one time on Sunday mornings, kind of knocking that luster off it, I would guess, a little bit right. as far as the um, highfalutin uh, <laughs> societal uh, event that it was at that point. Right, because suddenly your dinner hour turned into a three-hour marathon of right, you know, whatever. And it was like Sunday brunch at that point, right, since right, it was Sunday right. mornings. And at that point, too, admission to the recordings became free. And again, we throw that olive branch out yeah. we toss anybody, it out there anybody 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 that were to any of these free live tapings at the chase that would be great uh in a room in the room seated 900 fans yes so well, i mean again you see 900 that 900 is a good house though that's a great house yeah that's a good house absolutely but i mean but you think um again you just look at how that time this is how everything starts to change the practicality of doing a three-hour taping a three-hour taping a three-hour taping okay. to uh, spread it uh, spread it through uh, definitely changes things up a little bit. So uh, KPLR ends its relationship with St. Louis Wrestling Club in September of 1983. Uh, they ended the uh, St. Louis version of Wrestling at the Chase, but at that point, the station makes a deal with the WWF who would produce its own wrestling-related programming. Uh, you're skipping over an awful lot. There. Am I? Well, Muchnick uh, finally got... Got tired and started to engineer his, you know, he wanted to step down from the wrestling club. I believe the story goes, uh, the unfortunate story goes, is he had purposely set up all of his finances that had anything, if anything were to happen to him, uh, his wife would be taken care of. Okay. You know, very much. Yeah. But unfortunately, she passed away before he did. And then his heart just kind of went out of the business. Oh, and then he just kind of because he was it. working to provide for her, but now she was out of the equation. So he was kind of well, I can't take it all with me. Right. So he willingly wanted to step down. So he stepped down from the presidency, and that led to uh, Fritz taking over. Yeah. Well, uh, it, uh, uh, one one thing, um, Muchnick was such a, a stickler for reality that. At one point, Fritz von Erich was being considered for the NWA title, mm-hmm. but um, Muchnick would not allow him would not allow anybody with the name Fritz von Erich to hold the title because that was obviously a gimmick name, which led to Fritz to start to be referred to by his real name as Jack Addison and some yeah. or Adkison in some promotional materials and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, in the event that he would become champion, suddenly he would have to do it under the name Jack Atkinson. Okay. You know, just uh, right. wouldn't right. allow Baron Von Raschke to come in or would well, brought him in, wouldn't allow him to appear under the name Baron Von Raschke because he wasn't a Baron. So he was Fritz Von Raschke, Fritz Von Raschke. Really? Yeah, just things like that. You're not a Baron. Sorry. Baron didn't, yeah, that's of course, I could hear him say, I'm not German either. But, you know. <laughs> but what are you, you going to do? Um, Muchnick retires in 82. Yes. Race, Geigel, and Gagne take over St. Louis at that point, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And uh, they they all, I'm sorry, do you have no, somewhere no, to go no, with I this? Just, I, can I, just, I can just go off of this yeah, right please here. Please do. Please do. Uh, so they buy into it. But then what we had said before earlier about the central states always putting pressure on St. Louis to bring the Central States boys. Suddenly they brought it in. I mean, you had all of these people had an interest in St. Louis, but it was really run by Geigel in out of Kansas City. So he was able to get a lot more of his talent on the cards, and it just sort of kind of to drop down. Then you also had stories about bills starting to go a long time without getting paid. I mean, it just thing a lot of things fell off. Matizik was not or, or Matisic, sorry. It I, I, again, I had to have it corrected. It's a tough name. Well, I had to have it confirmed to me by a colleague of mine who's actually met Larry Matizik and everything like that. Do you not want to say his name? Oh, uh, Matt Winchester. Yes, but great, I, I great wrestler. Sure. <sighs> great. Now we just lost four listeners. <laughs> believe, believe me, wrestling. Yeah, never. We skipped over Wild Bill Longson. My favorite quote from him when he was helping to run the thing from backstage. Former NWA champion from before Thez or, you know, in the Thez days or whatever. 
uh, one of the hired, the hired muscle, the gorilla of St. Louis promotion, told the boys, do whatever you want to, but shut the hotel door. Yeah. Like, and a lot of these, I mean, now much, Nick, we talk about his, his legitimacy as a, a businessman and being able to mediate everything. He still had to deal with all of these morons in professional wrestling. Right. And I, I mean, and it even goes back in the day, you know, no matter how good a deal is, wrestlers are going to screw it up. Yes. Uh, just, it's a the running theme. I mean, it's a, I hate to break kayfabe here, but I mean, it's a fantasy world and people will go to ridiculous lengths to preserve that fantasy. So. Right. No, uh, absolutely. Uh, anyway, so, so Mushin gets tired of dealing with all the, the monkeys in the zoo yeah. and decides he wants to step down. Matizik, uh, Matizik. Matizik, sorry, attempts to stay in the office but realizes that things are changing and he's not really happy with that because he was brought up under the Muchnik realm of how wrestling should be and that you know, it was very frustrated at what was going on. So he tries to start the, the other group that right. works in the St. Louis area. Right. And so when... Uh, Ganya, Geigel, and Reyes uh, run St. Louis, and they get it in 82. But then by, like we said, September of 83, uh, television pulls the show off the air. Did they just not care about television? Were the like the uh, the guys that took over St. Louis, were they just kind of like whatever? Or? Yeah, I mean, it was a satellite town for them. Like, it was just something... You know they had input into it, but again, it was really being run, in, really being run by Reyes and Geigel and whatever yeah. was going on there. To all these other people that were listed, they were just at home getting a check. Mm-hmm, right. Know? So it's like, hey, I hope it does good. And I can contribute talent, and but it's really being run by these other people. So it was it was a satellite interest. It didn't have anybody on top of it watching the store the way it did under Muchnick. Sure. Yeah, I could see that. And then, so oh, I'm sorry, but oh, you're going to say it. the WWF comes in. Yep, uh, December 27th, 1983, and January 16th, they run shows at the Chase Park Hotel. Matisic goes to Muchnick and says, "Hey, the WW, you know, Vince is coming in here. They asked me for a job. You know, what should I do here?" And Muchnick tells him, "Go with Vince. Right? I mean, he's the one that's going to win." So Matisic works with Vince for a while, but then loses. You know, realize Vince isn't going to take care of St. Louis the way that Muchnick took care of St. Louis, so he steps out of the right. relationship. Well, it's almost that same way in Georgia. The way McMahon stepped in was flying wrestlers down on the weekly yep. basis, and then eventually just started sending tapes, and that's what ticked off Ted Turner. That sent, uh, that got things going there. Well, one thing that used to infuriate me when I was an angry young man, and now I'm resigned to that. I see how the world works. Is that. Vince Vince Jr. entered into these contracts and he had no intention of fulfilling any anything. Of them. Right, he just wanted to right. get in there and then, oh, it's changed and now here's what we're gonna do. Which I was so frustrated in, you know, with reading about how can anybody do that. Now it's just kind of like, oh, okay, it makes sense. That's how like that's how the whole issue with uh, Chinese imports started to come about is that Chinese people were even more lax on that. That no, we made this agreement at this point. And now it's changed, so we're going to change this. Right. You know, Chinese. I'm not. I'm not saying it's correct, and I'm not. I'm right. not trying to be racist or anything. But that's where the, you know, the issues with uh, the melanine, uh, melanine contamination of yep. of dairy products or whatever. It's like, no, they were just. Oh, you want us to meet this test? Well, we're going to meet this test, but we never said we're going to do it legitimately. But I mean, it's just it's all a business. No, decision. absolutely. And let me. That's kind of the downside on the Chinese thing. I'll give you one upside as a parent of a child who likes Legos. The Chinese knockoff of Legos, which are basically just Legos, like they stole the molds or got the molds and redo them, are great. They're super cheap. And it's the exact same thing, and there looks to be no difference. But they're not gassing off poisons into your child's skin or anything? I don't think so. Okay. Well, we'll see. Keep an eye. Yeah. Well, if, if an eye falls out, I should keep an eye. Well, I, you know, I'm just saying. Yeah, but they're great. I, okay. But, but, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> we, we got off on a tangent there. Um, but yeah, Vince entered into all of these contracts and had, I mean, even with the whole deal with Stampede and trying yeah. to buy out the hearts for a million and then paying him a hundred grand and saying, eh, I'm not going to pay this. Go ahead and start up your deal. Again. Look at these two particularly though. Look at Georgia and look at St. Louis and you can see Vince did the exact same thing yep. because so he does the two TV tapings. Um, and in fact, bit of trivia, the first of those shows featured the first appearance of Gene Okerlund and Hulk Hogan. 
right after that, their departure from AWA. Those are the first times that they were featured on uh, WWF television. Yes, that's when he first stole them from Minneapolis. Also, uh, was going to steal the mountain from Stone Mountain, Georgia. Jerry Blackwell, who saw the uh, the factory like aspect of the WWF, how they're just rolling off matches and everything, um, and quit his first day. Yeah, he just said, "No, nah, this isn't for me. I'm going to go back and." Right. Went and became Vern's number one baby face for a little bit. But so think about, like, again, Georgia and St. Louis. Yeah. Vince does the same thing. He first starts bringing his group in there, doing the shows. Right. And then slowly but surely just starts sending in tapes. Yep. And just turns it into regular old WWF television programming. Yep. Yeah, and then that's how, the vision, and yeah. that's how it all, it just, I mean, and yes. Back in my day. It's infuriating in the sense of, the purity of wrestling then becomes gone and it becomes this homogenized business where it's just one thing and you see it's that aesthetic is the same and everything, but you get it. If you're a businessman, you understand it and it makes sense as a fan, as somebody who loves it, you're a little bit like shit that sucks. Right. Because before you had variety and now you've got, um, I'm not sure if we've done this on the show before, but I know I've remarked this to you uh, personally. As a comic book geek, when you got the late late '70s Marvel house style, yeah, like that's what wrestling turned into, where everything looked like John Romita drew. Right, right, right. But before you had Kirby and Ditko and Colin yep. and all, you know, you had all of these different styles that created a mishmash, and you can pick and choose instead of now you've got generic, generic comic book art, right. generic professional wrestling, right. You know? That's how I was with the, the comic books in the 90s. It was just that same, like... Oh, when everything got grim and gritty. And it was all just... Well, it all was kind of like that, like, Liefeld, McFarlane, stretchy, stringy, right. sinewy, like, just that long stretch. Well, I hated of, that. I remember er, just previous to that when it was all Frank Miller. Right. After the... No, you know, yeah, no. I hurt. I live. <laughs> right. You know. Right. So we're going to start and wrapping that, this one and up. that was Archie. All right. Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> By the way, the new Archie TV show looks dark as hell. Oh, nice. Okay. So I think it's on the CW. Check it out. Uh, two quick things, then we're going to wrap this one up. Uh, on August 29th, 1986, the WWF hosts a Sam Muchnick Memorial Tournament at the Keele Auditorium, Ooh. sells it out, attended by nearly 11,000 fans, making $87,000. Uh, correct. Uh, you're also... I believe you missed Sam Muchnick's retirement card. Oh yes, there is that as well uh, too. Because that was that was very notable for, I believe Junkyard Dog got fired after was it Junkyard Dog got fired after WrestleMania three, but no Hacksaw Jim Duggan after he got his uh, drug conviction with yes. the Iron Sheik was fired by the WWF. Muchnick wanted to do this retirement card, specifically asked that Duggan get put back on the card, and that's how Duggan got hired again. Oh, okay. Yes. I did not another good one. Yeah, I did not know that. And then uh going to the somber tone of the Frank Miller comics on December 30th, I 1998, hurt. at the age of 93, Muchnick and Luthez were involved in a car crash in which Much uh, Muchnick died of internal bleeding. That's not true. Yes, that's absolutely correct. Oh, okay. I see what you're talking about. I get that confused with a car crash. It wasn't a car crash. It was when Luthez got injured, uh, losing the title to who's the guy that was the Packer? I Packer don't know. And the Bear. Oh, you're killing me now. Football player. We talked about it on uh, one of your previous. Anyway, Thez went over the top rope, hit his knee on the on the floor, and wrecked his knee. So Sam Muchnick had to drive Thez back to St. Louis, I believe, from Minneapolis. Bronco Nagurski, that's who, okay. that's who I'm thinking of. Yep. Uh, match with Bronco Nagurski. Thez injured his knee. Uh, Muchnick had to drive Thez back to St. Louis while Thez was holding his knee uh, to get straight. And then Muchnick referred him to, instead of taking him to a standard doctor, took him to a sports medicine doctor so that he could get back into the, because he knew everybody from the St. Louis Cardinals, uh, so that Thez could get back into the ring and everything like that. So those two were intertwined in their career so much. The fact that they were together when... Much Nick was in the accident and passed away really kind of gives a bookend to their relationship. Right. And that's pretty much where we end up here now with uh, Sam Muchnick, St. Louis Wrestling. Um, any final thoughts on it, Derek? Well, it is, again, it's 
when you suggested this to me and you said, hey, we could do St. Louis, I immediately thought we could just as easily do San Francisco or do Portland or possibly do Florida, where you had these promoters that took the strong creative hand and how they wanted to present their product. And we could, you know, almost deconstruct the formula everywhere of sure. why it worked. Now, in St. Louis, it was all about respectability and credibility and being a legitimate sport, and that's how Sam Mushnick engineered it, and that's how he that's how he liked it. Yep. And the great thing about technology and the world we live in now, this is episode seven. Who knows? We can do that on some episode episodes down the road from this point. Um, next week, speaking of episodes, this one was a, a very dense, heavy, information-based episode, and next week we're going to lighten it up again just a little bit. Uh, we're going to talk about... Some of our favorite uh, gimmicks, gimmicks, Hit the gimmick table. Yes, um, especially you know in the 1980s, it was a huge. Um, the VHS market was on fire, and all kinds of different uh, performers were putting stuff out throughout the country. You know things like PWI's Lords of the Ring VHS tape or uh, Exotic Adrian Street and his record that he put out. Imagine what I could do to you. Yes, uh, some real great stuff. So what we're going to do is we're going to revisit some of our favorite. I've thought of something already. Have you? Beautiful. Um, we're going to visit some of our favorite gimmicks, uh, tchotchkes, if you will. Um, just all kinds of different things that uh, were sold, given away. Have we uh, got a video? <laughs> yeah, so... We're going to be talking about that next week. Um, once again, uh, this was a nice episode about Sam Muchnick, St. Louis Wrestling. I am your co-host, Jay Gilke, uh, speaking for the one, the only, the incomparable Derek St. Holmes Esquire. want to thank our sound engineer, Kyle Arpke, and of course, Eric Arsenal for the intro song. We will see you next week. We are live from Cigars and Conversations, available exclusively at OneGimmickWorld.com, and we will see you soon.